Amen. Amen. So we, we started a series called Soul Therapy, and we have talked about addiction and anger. And next week, we're going to talk about depression and the following week, insecurity. And so today isn't so much in line with the soul therapy, but we definitely could say it is. Um, as a pattern, we take the Sunday before Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday to remind ourselves of that life and legacy in order to move our hearts towards the things of justice and compassion uh, in, in our country and to understand the context for which we live in, not ignoring it, not forgetting it, but acknowledging it. But with that, I could say today fits totally in line with anger. And last week I talked about dark anger, but this could fit in line with righteous anger. And Dan Allender, when he talks about righteous anger, he says it's got three things that it's meant to do. It's meant to expose, which means it's a warning that informs the offender that a violation or assault has occurred. So it wants to expose these realities. It means to invite change to turn from those actions and behaviors, um, and it wounds. Not in violence, but it wounds in order to heal. Its purpose is to inflict a pain, not a violent pain, not a strike in that way, but a pain in order to escape the horror or even the more destructive harm that is being caused. So I could say today, that when we talk about Martin Luther King Jr., we're talking about a righteous anger in his move within the civil rights. In preparation for this, I was reading through a number of Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, sermons and speeches, and there's one that I want to hone in on today, and it's the letter from Birmingham Jail. So I don't know if many of you have read that or not. If you were forced to, or you were just a student of history and wanted to read into the context, like myself, up until this moment, I had not. I'm a little embarrassed of that reality, right? I, I, I've heard of it. I actually thought it was a book, right? And yet, it's a letter. But today, I want to look at that letter as a sense of righteous anger. It was meant to expose. It was meant to invite change. And it was meant to wound. And the direct audience that it was meant to wound were white moderates in the white church. That's who it was directed to. It was directed in response towards eight white pastors, clergymen, and a rabbi within, it almost sounded like a joke, but no, it's not the setup for a joke, but it was set up in response to eight religious leaders within Birmingham, Alabama, who wrote a letter that got published in the Birmingham newspaper. This letter was in response to a group of demonstrations and marches that had taken place within Birmingham, Alabama, starting at the beginning of April of 1963. They were doing these because of the great injustice that was in Birmingham. Of, one of, the large, of, a, of a large scale city, it was one of the ones with the most prominent assaults towards racial equality. It had the most bombings towards black families and that were unresolved and unsolved. It had an openly um, wicked judicial system. And so it was considered just a racist, racial city, strife and tension. It was segregated, it was poor, and it was undermining humanity. And so Dr. Martin Luther King and others were invited into Alabama to do protests, to demonstrations, non-violent protests. So they went into the city, they began to do this. This was an attempt in order to bring disruption, but to raise the tension so that conversations could be had, negotiations could be had towards peace and reconciliation towards humanity because there was none 
So they brought this as, and this tension kind of erupted. Everyone wanted these demonstrations and these sit-ins to stop because business owners were losing money. And that was the whole point, to create friction and tension. Nonviolent, but as well to create tension. Um, in early April, an ordinance was passed within Birmingham says there is no lawful demonstrations allowed. No one can parade without uh, filling out a petition form. And anyone who does so will be arrested. The civil rights leader said, so be it. We're going to demonstrate and we'll be arrested. And we'll willingly accept the cause of being arrested. So and on like April, the, they went out on April the 12th and they were arrested. Martin Luther King Jr. and a number of other civil rights leaders were put into jail there in Birmingham. And while he was in jail, this letter was written by eight clergymen people, to the people of Birmingham, Alabama, and otherwise saying, stop doing these demonstrations. This is not the right time. Outside influencers are causing this trouble. This is precipitating more violence. This is not good. This is not wise. And this is not right. We ask you to stand down. That newspaper got handed to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. within his jail cell in Birmingham, and he read it. And as an overflowing of prophetic voice and of righteous anger, he wrote a letter in response. Partly he says, well, there's nothing else to do when you're sitting in jail alone except to write long letters, think long thoughts, and to pray long prayers. He had no paper except for people who smuggled into him, and he wrote on toilet paper and on the margins of the newspaper, and he wrote this letter in response, and it's a letter of righteous anger, but yet it's filled with love. And so today, I, I want to share portions of this, and I think it's incredibly relevant, and I think as well, the righteous anger of this letter will spill over to us and potentially pierce our hearts and our souls. It's actually my hope. Not in a way to guilt us, but a way for the Spirit of God to move us, to move us towards good. I pray that your heart will be open as we read through this historical letter. And these are historical responses to injustice within our context of the United States of America. Some of you were alive during these times. Some of you, like Harvey, it was very rare. He said he was stationed in Mississippi in 1957, right, doing his, his basic training and saw the abundant racism within that time. Others didn't live during that time, but we also feel and understand the racial discrimination and strife that happens even today that is unresolved and unmoved. So let me pray, and let's look at these pieces and see what God has for us today. And I pray your heart will be open to the Spirit to teach you and speak to you and knowing what, how to apply this. So, Father, you were good and you were a good teacher. Your messages were sharp that you proclaimed to people through prophets and even through your son Jesus. It cut to the heart of humanity. You spoke things kindly with mercy, but you did not mince words. And so, Father, would we come to hear and listen? Today, would you speak into our spirits? But let us give us ears to hear today from a prophetic message that has not changed. Let us be open to you and to your words and be moved by your spirit to repent. 
We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The first thing that was asked of Dr. King when he read that letter, it said that there was an outside agitator who had come in. He's a great offense to this outside agitator. He said, the, like, almost like, why was he even there? He took great offense and he wrote into that as if he shouldn't have been there, that this is just a subject matter for the people of Birmingham, Alabama. We'll pull those people together, but let's stop bringing in these agitators. They're stepping in to cause trouble. And Dr. King took great offense at that. He said, I was invited in, but he responded to this. Why are you here, Dr. King? And he responded this way, but more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their own hometowns. And just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. And within the beginning of this letter, while he said he's here, he, was, he made this, this poignant point of injustice that has created images and signs everywhere saying injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's why he was in Birmingham, Alabama. He went on to say about this justice in Birmingham saying, there can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. They asked the question, so why are you doing these sit-ins? Why are you doing these demonstrations? Why are you doing these, these marches? Couldn't there be a better way? Couldn't we, couldn't we just negotiate? And when I say, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. He went on to say that it's meant to create a tension. It's meant to create this because no one was willing to negotiate. No one was willing to talk about these ongoing tensions of racial injustice that was going on all around them. But yet when they created these tense moments through nonviolent sit-ins and demonstrations, it finally moved people to take action, to listen. No, it didn't come quickly. It didn't come easily. And it didn't come without many people suffering. Dr. King went on to say, he says, I must confess that I'm not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed a violent tension, but there's a type of constructive, nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. See, tension is, is, that's what he's trying to do, he's exposing. And tension 
is created in order to invite the offender to change. It's meant to expose, to create tension in order for people to listen, come to their senses, to expose, and to change. Now, I just didn't want to um, share my own, uh, just read portions of Dr. King's letter. Um, actually, in Texas, at the University of Texas of Austin, as a part of one of their schools of business, they had, uh, the, this teacher had used the writings of Dr. King, especially the letter in Birmingham, uh, as a way of leadership principles. And he would just read the letter out loud as a powerful thing. If you know, I want to encourage you, read this letter. It will take you about 45 minutes to do so, to an hour. Um, but uh, he wanted to um, create a, a place for people to really be moved by the reality of this letter. And so he hired um, an actor. And this actor, and then they hired a director in order to almost reenact this creatively. But the only words are the words of the letter. The actor's name is Corey Jones. Um, we're going to get ready to play this video. It's a five-minute excerpt of the letter, just a portion of it. I want to uh, warn you too, they're gonna, none, none of this has been fabricated. Uh, the, this is the letter of what this actor is doing. They, they pulled in creative ways of doing so. He's going he's to speak for the majority of it from a jail cell in Texas. Um, but there's also going to be images that are going with it um, from this time and from the racial injustices that happened in our day. They're grotesque, and so I just want to warn you, um, but they, they are true. And they were put in here as a way to expose, to create tension, um, to affect uh, a response from us all. So uh, let's watch this. We've got about five minutes of this, of this uh, letter in this form that I'd love for you to listen to. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign which was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see, with one of our distinguished jurists, that justice too long delayed is justice denied. When you're down in trouble, you need some
waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence. But we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at will, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on the television, and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told Funtown is closed to colored children. And see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky. And see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored when your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title missus, when you are harried by day and hunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, constantly living at a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness. Then will you understand why we can wait no longer. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, that you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You can watch that whole um, letter that's being reenacted in that way, letter to Birmingham jail, a call to unity. You can find that online. When many people continued, Dr. King, in this writing, as he gave these grounds for why they were there, so midway through, he had two confessions that he made. Two confessions of his frustration that he communicated out. And the first one was a confession to white moderates of his anger, thinking that they would step up and do something and engage. 
And the second confession was his anger towards the white church and its leadership for their lack of engagement. So let me go into this first one. He says, first, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with the methods of your direct action, who paternalistically believes he must set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly devises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season, Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So the stumbling block, and here's the thing that challenges me as well on this. So the greatest obstacle towards these issues of justice in the world is not the outright wicked one doing it. But it says it's the moderate people who do nothing. The white moderate who stands by and is unmoved at the injustices that they see, saying, oh, this isn't the time. Let's let another way see if this can happen. He speaks around this idea, this myth of time that is incredibly convicting this myth of time saying, it's going to come. But could it be, and they also spoken of Dr. King, could it be that you're just in too much of a hurry? This will be way too dangerous to try to encourage this kind of justice at this pace that it's being pushed for now. Dr. King's response about this, hey, it's going to come inevitably. You're just in, could it be you're wait, not waiting patiently for this to come? His response was this, such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time from the strangely rational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably kill, cure, inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can neither be destructively or constructive. More and more, I feel that people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes to the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always right, ripe to do right. Challenged by this idea of time, and I love the statements of Dr. King saying, it always seems that those of ill will, they, they seem to be better, they seem to use their time better than people of goodwill. It's always the right time to move forward with evil or wickedness or, or unjust gain. 
But why is it for those of goodwill? They're always wait, we're waiting for the perfect time, for the absolute circumstances to be perfect. Oh, this challenges me. It always seems never to be the right time to do something costly, but it, it's good. Never the right time towards sacrificial love. Never the right time in order to help a brother in need in which way will really cost myself or my family. Never seems to be the right time to pause dreams and ideas for the sake of those suffering. It would never be the right time. I mean, for parents, it's never the right time to include kids into your life. It's never the right time to foster kids. It's never the right time to stand with the oppressed in solidarity. But yet the challenge that we must be creative with time. Jesus himself has these words in Mark 1:15, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Change your thinking. Begin to act differently. God is on the move. It's the time. It's the time to move for God's good in this world. It's never the wrong time. We must use time creatively. It is always the right time to do right. So my question is, is how are you using your time? This is not to guilt you into moving something, but to stir us towards love and saying, it's the right time to do good. It's always the right time. And so even, I mean, the, the warming center is such a simple, almost tangible example. It's always the right time to help. No one needs to pray and ask God, oh God, do you want me to help the poor? Absolutely, he's told us that thus far, right? Everywhere he writes, love, give yourself to that, right? So sign up. But the challenge deeper, that here's the question I want you to wrestle within this time for you. The thing that God continues to put on your heart, the good that he's moving your heart toward, the good that will be costly, the sacrificial love that will cost something of you. And you continue to wonder if it's the right time. May God move you. This is, oh, it's the right time. So my question, if you would pause and allow the Lord to speak, how are you using your time? The time is always right to do right. The second big discouragement that Dr. King brought up, his second major disappointment, is this. He says, let me take note of my other major disappointment. I have been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. He goes on to say, when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama, a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. Felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. More cautious than courageous. This is meant to wound, right? It's meant to call out the church. He goes on to say, in deep disappointment, 
I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. He was a pastor, a preacher himself, a son of a preacher, the grandson of a preacher, generations of preacher. He loved the church, and he mourned for the church. He began to warn and to wound and to expose for the sake of this righteous anger. He says this, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day, I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. That could have been written yesterday, right? It's a disappointment. Dr. King said, it seemed, they, there, were, there were people, right? I mean, we, we we're going to celebrate Dr. King tomorrow as a country. There will be um, processions and, and all people will make notice of it. But yet the majority of people were against him. Saw him as an extremist. Saw him as a, as a troublemaker. Telling him to stop. But yet tomorrow he'll be celebrated by everyone. There was a remnant. There was a church within the church who stepped into this reality in order to be in solidarity with the suffering. They said, yeah, we must do this. But yet, the the majority of the white church was silent. They continued to be pressed and pushed and prodded to engage in the injustice within our country that had stemmed for hundreds and hundreds of years. No one ever denied it. And they agreed with the cause, but found themselves unmoved. And it was the church in this context, these religious leaders who were saying, you're going about this wrong. Not praising these protesters who didn't respond with violence, but praising police who did not, who they, in their eyes, showed restraint but yet they let dogs on people and and beat other people and push their old men and women. Shortly after this, the children decided that they would stand and march, and they did the children's crusade. And in early May of 1963, 1,000 children went into the streets of Birmingham, Alabama and began to protest. 1,000 children. It's usually the kids who respond faster to so many things. Even today, I can think of children leading movements, trying to push conversations and dialogue where there is none. But yet the kids are standing up. I think about things with gun violence. They're stepping up and being a voice and yet being pushed against by adults in power. I think about the issues with our environment and kids seem to be the ones who are standing up with a voice. But yet these are gospel issues of good news. Respecting life and the good that all God has created, but yet it's children who moved this. When the children stepped in in 1963, as they said yes, as they saw the time was ripe in order to leave school and to step into the streets of Montgomery, Alabama, and within hours, I think it was 600 of them were arrested, and they were entreated cruelly. 
The dogs were out. They were forced. And it got outrage. Finally, right? Finally, something moved to those in power to take notice of the tension that was there in, Montgomery, in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And it wasn't the tension that was just in Birmingham. It was here in Detroit. It was in Chicago. It just wasn't the South. It was everywhere. And that form of racism existed everywhere with just different titles and names. After the children stepped up, different ordinances were passed and, and the court system got into place and, and began to integrate the schools. This happened in May and in September the 4th in Alabama and Birmingham, the schools were being integrated. But within 10 days, that's when the, the bombing happened at a church, September the 16th in 1963, put on a, a killing four children. I had been bombed by those who opposed integration and wanted to continue segregation. And they began to outrage people, and finally from there, things began to move a little bit, but now of the blood of our kids. His challenge was this outrage. He was calling for this recapturing of the sacrificial spirit of the early church that was more courageous than cautious. What, that look, what does that look like for us? Liv, I, I love the example of, of us and talking about our kids and serving and serving in the warming center, right? And our kids seeing this. But we want to move with courage, not caution towards the things that are good, toward the good that is needed in this world. In 1 John, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's what love looks like. That's what Jesus did. His enemies, those who were rebelled against him, those who hated him, those who chose their own freedom in order to abuse others with their freedoms. Jesus laid down his life for us. In response to this love, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What does this look like? Well, apparently, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? This is meant to wound, right, that the Apostle John wrote. It's, missed, it's meant to prompt. It's meant to expose. It's meant to bring repentance. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. May you capture the sacrificial spirit of the early church. Dr. King was accused of being an extremist. He didn't like that at first, but later he began to realize that many people whom we love and trust and follow are extremists. Jesus himself, an extremist, love your enemies. (laughs) Pray for those who hurt you, persecute you. The Apostle Paul saying, I bear in my body the scars of Christ, an extremist. Martin Luther, an extremist. Our founding fathers, extremists. Abraham Lincoln, an extremist, to saying this country cannot be half free and half slave. We're filled with extremists, but his big question was, what will you be an extremist towards? Love or hate? 
an extremist for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? We must capture the sacrificial spirit of the early church and be filled with more courage and caution. What will you be an extremist towards? Love or hate? Preserving injustice or pursuing justice? It would demand that sacrificial call that Jesus did to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. The letter ends this way. With hope and love. But here's almost a prayer. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham. Even if our motives are at present misunderstood, we will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. It closes with this last line, let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scantilating beauty. May that be. That time has yet to come. But may racial prejudice soon pass away and a deep fog of misunderstanding be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. Today, as you hear these words, I pray that they are prophetic, meaningful, and challenging. I pray that the righteous anger exposes something in each of us, either the way we're using time, not taking advantage of the time that God has given us, that we find ourselves more cautious than courageous, that we find ourselves just waiting and not standing up for the oppressed and joining with them and returning to the sacrificial posture of the early church. May that be so. Tomorrow we will have the opportunity to recognize this day if you choose to or not. Anyone have the day off? It's meant to be a day to remember, to recognize, in some ways to repent and be haunted of the history of our of our country, but other ways to celebrate the kind of leaders who have stepped up with integrity and courage and to speak out against injustice as Jesus did and to imitate those ways. May you step into that day. May you listen to God and step into action. There is no direct application except for you to say yes to the opportunities that are put before us by God. May we listen and do so. Let me pray. Father, you're a guide and you're, you're a teacher and maybe even reading this creates tension for people here. Tension with them. They don't like this conversation. It feels overboard. It feels political. Who knows what? Would you come and allow us to step fully into the tension that we feel? Maybe we feel guilt or stagnant or embarrassed Father, you're a good guide and you don't leave us in those places, but you want to move us towards life. So Holy Spirit, lead us to this life, the life you're inviting us to. Let us not turn away in fear, 
but we invite you to teach, you to prompt us with these words that would lead us to have a response to you, to our brothers and sisters. Speak to us, Lord. May our ears be willing to listen and respond to you. Amen. Thanks, Harvey. I want to encourage you, if you can, read something, engage something into the story. If there's an opportunity to do good tomorrow towards someone, use that time in that way, because that's how Dr. King would have used it. That seemed to be how Jesus used it. Do good. Move towards good. Today's an opportunity to sign up in the lobby. If you haven't signed up in some way, take another opportunity to do good in these next weeks by stepping in to something that's needed for those who are hurting and suffering. If you would like prayer, if you feel like God is putting something deep within you about how to use your time, but you are afraid, I have some of those. And you want just courage to step forward. You want it to be prayed with. The elders are here. They'd love to pray with you in any way. But we want to offer prayer with the elders as a response today. But otherwise, I want to send you in the name of Jesus as peacemakers and people who will redeem the time because the kingdom has come. May you go in the power of Jesus, of sacrificial love, receiving his love, his pleasure upon you, and giving it away. Would you go in that power today?